0: at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 17th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, John Bohannon talks about artificial intelligence in the psychologist chair. And David Grimm is here with some of our latest online news stories.
1: Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aas.org.
0: Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on how old our hands are. We humans diverged from chimpanzees about 7 million years ago. And when I say diverged, I mean that our lineages split. The ancestors of chimps went one way, and the ancestors of humans went another. There's an open question about how chimp-like or human-like our common ancestor was. But it turns out, at least in the hand department, they may have been more like humans than chimps. So, Dave... How do our hands differ from those of chimps?
2: Well, our fingers are shorter. Our thumbs are a little bit longer, at least compared to those of chimpanzees. And the thought is, is our hands are structured in such a way to help us easily grasp objects, which would have been really important For us to begin using tools, which was one of the really fundamental things that sort of set our species on the path that it went on. Versus the hands of chimpanzees, they tend to have much longer fingers and much shorter thumbs, and that's thought to be an evolutionary adaptation to swinging through the trees.
0: And how did the researchers go about trying to figure out whose hands came first?
2: (laughs) Well, it wasn't easy. They had to look at a lot of different specimens, they looked at a lot of different uh, primates, humans, human ancestors, chimpanzees, gorillas, just comparing a lot of animals that are alive today and then a lot of species that were alive a few million years ago based on fossil records. And they're basically trying to figure out, as you said, Sarah, what exactly was the original hand when we're talking about the human-chimp split? Was that hand more human-like or was it more chimpanzee-like?
0: And so when they crunched all this data, when they did all these measurements across many, many different species, what did they find?
2: Well, basically what they found is the hand of the common ancestor of chimps and humans, and even perhaps earlier ape ancestors, had a relatively long thumb and shorter fingers. And what does that mean? That means it was actually more similar to the human hand than to the chimpanzee hand.
0: So if our hands are more like this 7 million-year-old common ancestor, and chimpanzees have evolved away from that or have a more derived state uh, in their hand, what does that say about tool use? Aren't our hands specialized for making tools?
2: Well, first of all, the idea is that we have a more primitive hand, evolutionarily speaking. But what it does say is that maybe our hands were already somewhat adapted or at least somewhat available for tool use. But tool use isn't just about having the hands to be able to manipulate tools. It's about actually having the cognition to know how to make tools, how to use them. And that may have been where the evolution happened, not so much in our appendages, but actually in our brains.
0: This also suggests that it's not always a good idea to think of our primate cousins as living relics, right? They're not just us a couple million years ago.
2: Exactly. I mean, that's been a mistake a lot of people have made. Well, chimpanzees are clearly more primitive than us. So when we're thinking about our ancestor, that ancestor must have looked like a chimpanzee. Well, what people forget is we've been evolving for 7 million years since that split, and so have chimpanzees. So we're both much more evolved than the creature we came from.
0: Next, we have a story on killer climate. Every year, heat and cold both cause deaths, especially among the elderly. As the world warms under climate change, will the death toll rise? So, Dave, this is a number-crunching study. Can you start us off with what numbers they looked at?
2: So, for this study, the researchers focused on a particular part of the world, New England and the United States. They looked for a period of eight years, and they looked at a few million people over this period tracking the deaths, especially of elderly people based on Medicare data and basically what they wanted to try to figure out was what the impact of temperature was on mortality and the tricky part is is that older people are likely to die anyways, right so you've really got to be able to tease out whether those deaths were attributable to weather
0: When they looked at the temperature data, did they see a change in deaths with hotter summers? And do they have any predictions about as summers get hotter, what's going to happen?
2: Well, they did see more deaths with hotter summers, which is what you would expect. With heat waves, the elderly people are going to be more sensitive. They're more likely to die. One question they had was, well, if our summers are getting hotter, maybe our winters are getting milder, and maybe there'll be a lot fewer deaths in the winter, and that will sort of make up for the more deaths in the summer. But they actually found that wasn't the case. They found that a rise of about one degree Celsius in mean summer temperatures killed 1% more people. But when the winters got milder, that only saved about 0.6% of people. So you're still having more people dying. The other thing they found that was kind of interesting was that it wasn't just the heat waves or cold winters that were killing people. It was sudden shifts in temperature. So you might have a very warm day followed by a much cooler day or vice versa. And that seemed to be a big killer, such a big killer in fact, that the researchers say the killing power of these jumpy temperature swings is greater than that of AIDS and comparable to diseases like liver cancer, which kills about 25,000 people in the U.S. every year.
0: Why do the researchers think that just a big swing in the temperature or the weather would cause more deaths?
2: Well, that's a little unclear, but one possibility is that our cardiovascular systems or our respiratory systems need time to adapt to these temperature changes. And if the temperature changes happen very suddenly, our bodies can't adapt.
0: This study was limited to New England, as you mentioned. Is there going to be a similar effect around the globe? Are they looking at that?
2: Well, that's the next thing to look at, whether these numbers hold true for the globe at large, which is going to continue to be a really big concern as the Earth continues to warm.
0: Last, we have a story on our internal mapping capacity. Over the past 40 years, starting with so-called place cells, researchers have slowly worked out how our brains know where we are, our internal mapping system. And the final puzzle piece may now be in place. Dave, what components of our biological GPS did we know about before this week's finding?
2: Well, sir, in the 1970s, scientists discovered the play cells that you mentioned. And these fire whenever, whenever an animal, for example, a rat, enters a specific location. A few decades later, scientists identified another group of neurons, which they call grid cells, and these seem to fire as rats or other animals traverse an open area. They sort of create coordinates similar to GPS that sort of gives the animal a sense of where it is in space. So when you have these play cells combined with the grid cells, the animal is able to create a mental map of its environment.
0: What about the latest finding?
2: Well, if you know where you are, you still got to get around, and you got to get around at a certain pace. And so the question is, are there speed cells? Are there cells that tell us how fast that we're going?
0: In the current study, they were looking for these speed cells using a treadmill. How did they get the mice or rats to run on the treadmill, and how did they analyze what was happening?
2: So they looked at a particular part of the brain called the medial entorhinal cortex, and this is a slim arc of deep brain tissue where scientists had discovered grid cells about 10 years ago. The team in this study, they implanted rats with electrodes into this region, and they basically put them on a movable treadmill, which they described as kind of like a Flintstones car. The rats could run around, but they weren't necessarily going anywhere.
0: What did they do? They went at different speeds in their little car?
2: Exactly. And when they did that, they found that there was a, a small subset of the neurons that they were looking at that seemed to fire faster when the rats went faster.
0: And could they tell when they looked at the firing, you know, the other way? Could they say, oh, these these cells are firing quickly, the rats must be going quickly? Exactly. And do they know specifically what the firing of these cells might mean? Does it depend on input from the outside world? Are they saying, oh, the world is going by faster, so I'm going to fire faster? Or is it looking more internally?
2: Well, this is pretty internal, and that kind of makes a lot of sense because you can be in a room I could turn the lights off or you could close your eyes. You're still going to be able to feel your way around. You're still being able to run around that room and get a general sense of where you are and where you're going. So a lot of this input is actually coming internally or potentially not necessarily from our eyes, from things like just what we're sensing with our muscles or our skin or even hearing about what's going on in the outside environment.
0: Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave?
2: Well, Sarah, we've got a story about... A big bird dino. This is the largest dinosaur ever found that has feathers and wings. Also a story about the science of human screams, how screams activate our brain's fear circuitry. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why the National Institutes of Health wants to restart its controversial children's study. This is a study that would track 100,000 children in the U.S. from womb to 21 years of age. Also a story about what the new Iran nuclear deal means for science. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org.
3: Imagine checking in for your psychotherapy appointment. But instead of entering an office with comfortable seating and muted colors, you log on to a computer, and share your problems with a computer-generated therapist who exists only on the screen in front of you. Artificial intelligence software programs are now in use that provide some psychotherapy benefits that human therapists do not. But researchers are still working out the kinks. John Bohannon discusses virtual psychology in a special section of this week's magazine. I'm Suzanne Bard. Getting mental health care from a computer rather than a real person might sound strange at first glance. Tell me what these programs are intended to do and how they work, John.
1: The first thing to make clear is that the programs aren't fully simulating a human therapist. Artificial intelligence is nowhere near good enough for that yet. What they are doing is taking some of the tasks that a human therapist does and capturing them as a computer guided kind of set of activities, mostly between the human patient and just a computer. There are two varieties that I've seen in the reporting for this story. One is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it involves a series of questions that encourages the patient to sort of identify her own negative thoughts and problems and struggles. And then once those are identified, it essentially creates a kind of self-guided, self-help set of practices, which the patient is supposed to take into the real world and apply. A lot of this, it doesn't involve real intelligence on the part of the computer. It's, It's kind of a recipe that guides you through it. In the same way that You could probably create computer programs that would help you become a better runner or swimmer. There are ways to help people to help themselves. The other way that I've seen is exposure therapy. And this is more on the side of the U.S. Department of Defense funded program that created the character Ellie. This is out of the University of Southern California. The goal is to carefully expose people who have been traumatized to emotional triggers in a controlled and carefully dialed way with the goal being to desensitize them to it.
3: John, how did AI psychology get its start in the first place?
1: Well, it goes back to the 1960s. There was a computer program called ELIZA created at MIT, and the goal wasn't psychotherapy at all. It was really just a platform for exploring human computer interaction. And ELIZA could follow these recipes for having conversations with people And the one that worked surprisingly well was one called Doctor. All it did was it pretended that it was a psychologist, and mostly it redirected your questions and statements back at you. So, for example, you might be talking to Eliza and say, I feel helpless today. And Eliza, the computer program, has no idea what you just said. It it doesn't have any semantic understanding of these words. But it has a clever set of algorithms that recognizes that you've said something, and that it has some keywords in it, for example, helpless, and it's going to send a response back to you that makes a lot of sense. It'll say, tell me why you think you feel helpless. Now, that sounds like the computer actually has a deep understanding of your dilemma. Not really. It's really just mathematical. It's just a a lookup table. It finds keywords, and under these circumstances, it triggers this response. Nonetheless, in spite of being really just a a bit of a parlor trick, people would sit down with Eliza for hours and have very, very revealing conversations.
3: Interesting. And that gets into my next question. Why people would turn to a computer for therapy in the first place? I mean, are there advantages over face-to-face therapy?
1: Well, it depends on who you ask. Some of the psychologists who are working with computer scientists to make these computerized therapy bots... Claim that in some circumstances, it's actually more effective to talk to a computer. The idea here is that you don't feel judged. When you talk to a computer and you know that it doesn't have full personhood, it doesn't really have a deep sympathy with you. In fact, it probably doesn't really fully understand your world or your problems, but it's listening. So the idea is that you can open up to this thing because you are, by definition, not being judged by another person. Yeah, right. The other reason that it might be good to talk to a computer is you may not have an opportunity to talk to a person. The majority of people on this planet don't have direct access to mental health care. That doesn't mean that they don't have mental health problems. So one of the big advantages of having a computerized system is that you can pipe it out to people in remote areas with the Internet.
3: Would this be exclusively talking to a computer or are there real human therapists behind the computer somewhere involved?
1: It's a mixture. So some of them are purely computerized with no human in the loop at all. And others are essentially a tag team between a human and the computer. You can think of those computerized systems as an extension of the practice of the clinical psychologist. Kind of like a physical therapist might send you home with some tools that you need to do to, you know, for stretching and exercise. And then you still come back and, and you get checked up on to see your progress. That's the direction that things seem to be going is this extension of the human caregiver beyond the office so that you can continue the therapy at home on your own.
3: Right. That makes sense. Can a computer actually diagnose a mental illness?
1: I mean, in principle, a coin can diagnose a mental illness, right? If you get lucky and flip a coin and you get heads and heads corresponds to something that actually the person suffers, then you have correctly diagnosed. That's not a reliable way of diagnosing people, but it's one way to do it. The idea is to take information that's available and match it to known symptoms. Human doctors are doing the same thing all the time. It's just that they're very good at it. So if a computer can learn that trick of taking available data and just mapping it onto the symptoms of known diseases and do not just better than random, which would be a coin, but you know as well as a human, then the answer is definitely yes, they can. Can they do it yet? Not sure. I mean, so far, the, the applications of these computerized therapy bots are very narrow, very specific. It's definitely not as good as a human yet. Could they be soon? In principle, maybe in very narrow cases.
3: And have there been any clinical studies on the efficacy of these programs?
1: There have been some papers. The group out of Oxford that created CBT Psych has put out some papers. And also the group out of the University of Southern California that created Ellie have put out some papers. But it's really early days. I mean, these are small subject group sizes and very, very constrained questions that they're asking. So, The answer is sort of yes, but also no, not yet. There is no paper that knocks it out of the park that's going to convince clinical psychology to start using these systems in a big way. Not yet, but the researchers tell me that those are underway. So stay tuned.
3: So you already mentioned a few of the improvements that researchers are working on. Overall, can you talk about future improvements that they're trying to make? Well, one of the things
1: that they're trying to improve with Ellie is to enable her to learn from individual patients. So they've created this system that is based on data from many, many patients and many, many sessions of real human clinical psychologists with their patients. But the real trick is going to be when you can actually learn from a patient in real time. Because though everyone has certain psychological features in common and people share problems in common, in a way everyone's, everyone's psychology is unique. And so you need to be able to gather information and adapt to it as you talk to someone. That's what human psychotherapists do effortlessly. They're incredibly good at it. And it's going to be a long time before we can capture the human ability to interview someone and really learn deeply what their individual problems are and struggles are. But we can at least start to do some of that learning. You know, with the problem of diagnosis, for example, you can, you can get a lot higher accuracy if you can actually ask the right questions from someone, which is going to be based on learning from them as you go. Under the hood, it's all just math. It's, it's a statistical model. But on the outside, it's going to seem increasingly human.
3: Well, it'd be fascinating to see where this goes in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for speaking with me, John. Thank you. John Bohannon writes about virtual psychologists in
0: this week's science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and publisher AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.